I have always been fascinated by the 1960s. Not that I want to relive them, I wasn't alive yet, but because I think they remade our country. Many of you know that firsthand. And, and during that decade or that season in the life of our country, there were many phrases and slogans that became part of the cultural mantra of the time. And arguably the most lasting, the most representative of all of them was the phrase, make love, not war. And it highlighted two of the most fundamental beliefs of the time. First, the so-called sexual revolution of the time worked overtime to foundationally detach sexuality from marriage. What, what at one point was some kind of cultural expectation or value, at least to a degree, was being pulled apart. Thus the phrase, make love. Second, there was a large part of the populace back then, especially younger people, who were concluding that these military adventures overseas, especially in Vietnam, were ill-advised. They were actually immoral. And, and the people were resistant to the idea of a mandatory military call, the draft. And so they concluded, many of them did, that war itself, especially this kind of war against communism of the time, was wrong. Thus the phrase not war. Put together, make love, not war, became the battle cry for a whole new generation of Americans. If you look on the back of your worship program, the title of today's message is Sex to the Glory of God. However true that is, it sounds rather plain and rather religious. I want you to know that I was just as tempted to entitle this sermon something else. Make love, make war. And by the end of our investigation into the Bible passage today about marriage and sexuality, I think you'll see why. Sex to the glory of God is not a trivial matter. It has profound spiritual consequences for us. We're in the second half of our series uh, on marriage and family. Heaven help the home. And this week and next week we're going to be finishing out our focus on marriage in particular, and in the final weeks, looking at the family, parenting, and children as well. We've looked at a bunch of important topics on those subjects. And today is another sensitive, hot topic on the question of marriage, sexuality and marriage. And you might be surprised to discover how much the Bible speaks in detail to that, not just in the Song of Solomon, which is a book that will make any of us blush when we read it and find it in the Bible. You're not surprised to hear that this topic is a challenging one for a lot of reasons, and I'm especially aware that there's a lot of diversity in this room, such as we have teenagers in this room and people who are retired. We have many people in between. We have those who are single, who are unmarried or divorced or uh, widowed, and even more who are married. We have those for whom the concept or the idea of sex brings very negative experiences to mind and, and others who see it as a welcome gift. We have those who would consider this topic, sex, and a Sunday morning sermon as two mutually exclusive topics, making them uncomfortable or not fitting their experience. Others think these topics are normal and you welcome them. After this morning, there will be some of you who will think, Wow, that was more than enough for me. And others of you who think that just scratched the surface. 
This is not the easiest topic for me either, but I can't think of anyone that this might make more uncomfortable than three Yoder children who have their father preaching to an entire church <laughs> on sexuality in marriage. Whatever your situation, my prayer is that God would speak to each of us, myself included, in personal ways, in ways that we need to hear. I'd like to begin today, uh, not in our main passage for today, but in a passage we were in a few weeks ago, Ephesians chapter 5. Turn in your Bibles first there. If you don't have a Bible, our host would be glad to give you one as a gift to you. If you don't own one, on loan to you. If you just forgot yours today, just raise your hand and they'll give that to you. Ephesians chapter 5, a passage that has all kinds of relevance for today's topic, especially for how husbands treat their wives. By the way, all men ages 13 to 100 who are connected at all to our church are not just invited but urged to be here tonight at 7 o'clock. We'll go until about 8.20, 8.25. This is an important guys' night, and we want all of you there. So please come, and if you're a wife or mother, do everything you can in your family schedule to make that possible. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, reads like this. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Here we find uh, from Paul the pattern of Christ for his church as a pattern for a husband for his wife, that a husband's consuming passion is the consecration and the celebration of his wife. That, that her well-being, that her maturity as a follower of Jesus is priority. And so he, according to Paul, is willing and working to do whatever benefits her. A godly husband will do whatever it takes so that his wife shines as a sparkling, radiant, beautiful woman of godly character. Christ longs for his bride, the church, to be holy and blameless before God. And in similar ways, a husband longs for his wife to be the very best version of herself before God. Beautiful, valued, discovered, affirmed, celebrated. And God uses a husband, imperfect as he is, and that's all of us, somehow to develop the radiant queen that is his wife. How does that happen? Well, the Bible makes it very clear here in one word, sacrifice. Verse 25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which serves as a model for the husband. That I, that you as a husband, ought to set aside our fixation with our own needs and wants and make her interests foremost. That you and I ought to be less concerned about our own comfort and more concerned about her presentation to God and to others. And in doing so, a husband is presenting his wife to himself. A husband's called to sacrificial service here. But when he does, not only does she win, but he wins too. Christ does this perfectly. Husbands do not. And all the room could echo, amen. But precisely for that reason, we husbands desperately need the strength and the wisdom and the power of God in order to love our wife well. We need supernatural resources, and God offers them to you, husband, today. 
Today we're looking at another passage of Scripture dealing with marriage. But before we go there, I want us to remain for another moment here in Ephesians 5. Look at verse 28 and following. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, to be honest, many husbands would prefer a verse 28 read like this. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives with their own bodies. In other words, this, this verse would be a, a call to frequent, uninhibited, passionate sex. But that's not what Paul writes. He writes, as their own bodies. And Paul tells us what that means. He says we all give lots of attention to our physical bodies. We may not always look like how it looks or what its shape is or how it works, but, but almost everyone, regardless of whether they like their body or not, gives more than ample attention to its comfort and to its presentation to others. So, Paul says, this command from husbands to wives or for wives is not altogether incomprehensible. In fact, it shouldn't be bizarre at all. As you would love yourself, God says through Paul, love your wife. Why? Because she's now you. She's a, a valued, a vital, and inseparable, attached part of you. And that remains true through all of life. And then Paul makes it personal. He says the marital oneness is enjoyed, is pictured in the sexual relationship, which is a relationship unique to the husband in all of his other relationships. For this reason, verse 31 a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. With that as a backdrop of life and service, specifically for the husband, as, as he sacrificially loves his wife, we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn over there if you would. Last week, Pastor Jonathan began our exploration in that chapter, specifically on the high and holy calling of singleness. This is a state of life that Paul praises, that he promotes. For every believer has a calling relationally, either to marriage or to singleness. And he spoke of the opportunities and the challenges for singles, whether it's by choice or circumstance or, or loss or divorce. God calls each of us to embrace his calling for our lives. But today we turn back directly to the subject of marriage, we're going to look at the first seven verses there, why sex is for the glory of God. And it's not just a personal topic or a minor issue for those of us who are married and follow Jesus. Sex is a key issue for our Christian witness. Now, I know in our culture, we, we talk about it a lot, joke about it plenty, worship sex at times, and ridicule it at others. Sex is a source of incredible joy and also reflects some of life's deepest pains. Greg Forster writes, if Christianity doesn't have something to say about sex and family in contemporary America, Christianity really doesn't have much to say about contemporary America, period. Our world, the world, needs our witness on sexuality like never before. Now, in order to understand the verses we're going to be looking at today, we need a little background at the end of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians. And you don't have to be a genius to know that we now live not on this side of, the, of creation, but on the back side, the fall. 
and that of all things sexuality has experienced massive damage because of the fall into sin. That's true today. That was true back in the ancient port city of Corinth. Think of Corinth as a mix between Las Vegas and San Francisco. And yet the gospel came to that very port city where God redeemed people from the futility of their ways and from the distortion of their lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he did then, he still does today. That people understand who the true God is and what Jesus has done on their behalf. And through repentance of, from sin and trust in Jesus Christ, that you and I can be made new. And our whole lives, including our sexuality, can be rewired for the glory of God. Paul writes to those new young Corinthian believers here. Verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Back in the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, a concept of dualism was widespread. Dualism meant this. Spiritual is good. Physical is bad. The soul is exalted. The body is unimportant. Spiritual conduct is profound. Physical con conduct is ignored. The body is profane. It's unimportant. It's detached. It's even abusable. The body craves what the body craves, and, and you got to gratify it however you need to. You have hunger pangs, you have sexual urges, and they're both of equal value. In addition, back in that world, women were viewed as distinctly inferior. A wife was for children and for domestic help. She wasn't necessarily a lover. For, for sex, many of the men in that culture went to the temple shrine. They gratified their desires with a prostitute. And for many people, it wasn't a big deal at all. Back in Corinthian culture, many think or thought then what too many think now, and that is that sex is just a piece of a body touching another piece of a body. It has no deeper meaning than that. What we do with our bodies has no moral significance. You can use your body any way you want. Sex is just a physical urge. It, it, there's no deeper desire or longing to connect with a person. It's just an appetite, like eating. So when you feel the hunger, you satisfy it. No big deal. But Nancy Percy hits it on the head, one of the best worldview writers in our culture. She says, this sexual hedonism gives sex too little importance. It treats the body as nothing more than a physical organism driven by physical urges. It deprives sex of its depth by detaching it from its meaning as a self-giving between a man and a woman committed to building an entire life together. In other words, marriage. Casual sex is anything but casual, the Bible teaches. Sex has deep meaning and deep value, deep significance, relational and spiritual. 
In fact, the Bible even says here at the end of chapter 6 that sexual sin is unique, not because it's worse than other sins, but because it affects us in unique ways, our psyche, our soul. Paul says, because you Corinthians have been bought at great price, the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, you can't live any way you want. You belong to Christ. You've been made holy, including in your bodies, your sexuality. And you can't just unite your body and your bodily organs with whomever, wherever you want. What you do with your body matters greatly. And this is ringing in their ears as Paul turns to topics of their choice in chapter 7, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. First main point in your outline, some people conclude that sex, the sexual maelstrom requires sexual abstinence. A maelstrom is a tumult, is an upheaval, is a circus of sorts in a negative way. We all know that sexuality is a powerful driving force, and it is so for all of our lives. Russell Moore, uh, a noted author in our time, uh, a writer of a book that I've referred to, recalled his own teenage confusions and conundrums, and then he wrote, when I had adolescent children of my own, I remember the horror one of them expressed when I explained the sorts of hormonal surges and inconvenient desires that would emerge with puberty. He seemed ready to withstand all of this, but asked, and how long does that last? And I said, well, pretty much all your life. He looked at me as though I had told him that he would be symbiotically joined to a werewolf spirit for the rest of his mortal existence. Here's the point. None of us outgrow our sexual design and the power and the sensitivity of sex. Ever since the fall, we humans have been tempted to either trivialize sex or deify sex. Either its meaning is nothing, or its meaning is the ultimate thing. We're so confused about the place and the purpose and the power of sexuality in our lives, and sex can cause incredible heartache. Too many of us know that all too well. That was true back in Corinth. These people certainly saw the pain of distorted sex in their culture, the frustration with the body, and they had heard about this higher life that spirituality could offer them and do away with the bodily desires and urges. And so some of them, including married couples, no less, concluded that it would be better to do away with sex once for all. It's too base. It costs too much pain, too much confusion. 
too much frustration. And so they echoed a slogan of the culture that we read in verse 1. To paraphrase, they say, Paul, you've been promoting this unmarried life. And, And since fornication and adultery are so commonplace, wouldn't it be better, Paul, if we just gave up sex altogether? Wouldn't it be better if we just lived celibate, even if we're married? If we pulled people in our culture, maybe some here, I'll bet more than a few of you have had that thought at one time or another. Why? Because sex is complicated. It takes effort. It fuels misunderstandings. It causes pain. Why not just get rid of it altogether? Then we could all focus on the higher life, on spiritual things. Some here would admit that previous sexual experience has jaded your view of sex altogether. Might be because of earlier abuse in your life or being taken advantage of. For some, it's the lingering effects of pornography. For some, it's the regret of sex before marriage, whether with your spouse or with someone or many others. Maybe it was a bad honeymoon. Maybe it was a bad start to your marriage. Whatever the case, sex just seems like a bad idea to you, an unnecessary evil. It's a painful wound. It's a thorn in your marriage. But that's not the way it was meant to be. And I want to say that whatever your history is, God's mercy is able to offer you forgiveness and to offer you healing if you ask him. I want to say one more thing, and I want to say it loud and clear so that no one ever says, I never heard that in church. Ready? Sex is good. I want you to repeat those three words out loud. Sex is good. That's God's design. That's the testimony of the entire Bible. Sex in marriage is one of the ways that we redeem God's good creation. And if that hasn't been your experience up until now, I want to invite you to ask God to make it your experience and even your desire as a married person. God can forgive. God can grant you forgiveness towards someone else. God can change your experience. God can even change you. The reality is God made us sexual creatures, and because God made us so, sex is good. And within Christian marriage, it is the most intimate celebration of life together in Christ. And now Paul proceeds to tell us why that is, why we should pursue it, and why it is protective. First, the question from them about abstinence or celibacy in marriage, Paul's answer is a resounding no. And he grounds his reason in the culture of the time, the sexual circus of that world. And our culture, by the way, is trying to imitate that, sadly. Paul could have just as easily grounded in creation. In fact, he does at the end of chapter 6. Sex is at the core of God's design for male and female and for his plan for humanity. Said differently, Paul says sexual abstinence within marriage is a bad idea. God says that here. Outside of marriage, we're called to abstinence. Within marriage, we're called to fidelity. And within marriage, sex matters, and there are multiple reasons. Sex itself has at least three purposes, and they all begin with P. The first is pleasure. 
God gives sex to married couples, to husband and wife, for their enjoyment. Never in a million years was sex intended to be a drudgery or a cause of great frustration. Maybe your experience, but that wasn't God's design. Second, in addition to pleasure, sex and marriage is meant for procreation, or at least the potential of that. When God first told the first humans, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply, he gave them a way to do that, and that continues to our day. And that, by necessity, requires sexual intimacy. We, of all people, followers of Jesus, should take that command seriously. Children are a gift from God and a gift to parents, and we'll be seeing that in a couple of weeks. Third, sex and marriage is for protection. And this is the one that we often overlook, and yet this is the one that is the heartbeat of what Paul says in the following verses. Point two, God teaches that husbands and wives belong to each other, including sexually. Verses 2 and 3 and 4 are kind of a three-point primer on our understanding and our pursuit of sex in marriage in light of our culture. And Paul says here that sex and marriage for followers of Jesus ought to be radically different, countercultural, and here's how. First, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, Paul writes. Pursue sexual intimacy. Marriage is a brilliant idea from God, Paul says, and that was true before the fall and continues to be after. It channels our relationships and sexuality in particular in constructive ways rather than destructive ways. Back in ancient Judaism, the, the law told husbands to, quote, bring happiness to their wives, and that included sexually. In fact, in perhaps the most Jewish of all the books in the New Testament, Hebrews, in chapter 13, verse 4, it reads like this, marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. That wasn't embraced, by the way, in Corinth. Back, back then, sexual passion was not necessarily connected to marriage. We've seen that. A spouse was often arranged, you know, for your status or for money or for your inheritance. But the Bible teaches something very different. Back then, sexual fulfillment was more than likely to be pursued outside of marriage with a, a slave or a prostitute. Not so in the Bible. Paul spoke not only to the sexual fidelity of the man, but equally to the sexual fidelity and honor of the woman. He says each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Again, Nancy Piercy says so well, Paul put the sexual genie into the bottle of marriage. The Bible was saying that all of man's erotic desire, affection, and sexual energy should be focused on his wife. And that sparked a dramatic social transformation and had an enormous impact in elevating the status of both women and marriage. Let no one say that Christianity suppresses the value of women. Just the opposite. And that's true even in this area. Second, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. That's pretty fascinating language. Pretty unmistakable. Put plainly, married couples are indebted to one another sexually. Did I just say that? Married couples are indebted to one another 
sexually. But the emphasis isn't on you owe me, but I owe you. And that totally reorients our view of sex and marriage. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I need. At least that's not supposed to be my focus. It's about my spouse. What does he want or need? What does she want or need? It's not about coercion. It's about sacrifice. It's not about my delight, but about his or hers. And that becomes very practical in terms of timing and frequency and place and patterns and sensitivities. This is radical teaching for all of us. Men, take notice. Remember the sacrifice, the service that God calls us to in Ephesians chapter 5? That includes the bedroom and our relationship with our wives. Women, take notice. God created your husband with intentionality. He cannot eradicate his sexual desires, nor should you want him to. This changes how we view our love. Our greatest fulfillment is not what we get out of sex from our spouse, one of our pastors said, but what we give through sex to our spouse. This is hard teaching. I know this firsthand. Some of you do too. But this is a dose of reality and a strong injection of hope when we consider what God can do with where we are and where he can take us. Third thing that Paul says here in verses 2 to 4 is that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And of course, this is the language of service, of other-centeredness. That means I cannot have claim to exclusive authority over my body for my gratification to do with what I please. My body is now shared. We both have a say. Her body is now shared. We both have a say. See, Paul lifts marriage and sexuality and marriage to a much greater level than the culture did, where it was often then and still sometimes now viewed as a husband's privilege and a wife's obligation. See, back then, sex would have been seen as a husband's authority alone, that he determined the use of their bodies. But Paul said not so. There is a mutuality here. The woman has authority over her body too and her husband's body. And this is countercultural. This is honorable too. This is protective. The two belong to one another in mutuality. There's equality of value, equality even sexually between husband and wife. We see that sex is not defiling, but it's life-giving. It's even necessary. Paul stresses the importance of giving rather than getting. Neither wives nor husbands have the right to use their bodies completely as they will. They have obligations to one another. But these obligations are meant to be a joy, not for gratification, but for intimacy. I love how uh, Tim and Kathy Keller in their book, This Momentary Marriage, summarize the unique gift of sex and how it's supposed to be enjoyed as a couple. The Kellers write, sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Not just sappy words for a Valentine's Day card. Not just from a romantic scene in a movie. 
These are words of dependence, of determination in this wonderful and sensitive relationship called marriage. And so if sex actually has this kind of value, if it's supposed to be delightful and protective, then how do we ensure that we have these kind of patterns in our marriage? And that deserves far more time than we have today. But let me make a few observations. First of all, sex is more than an act. It's an experience of bonding, of uniting. So take time, find times for that, married couples. Second, understand that moods and desires are different, and so is male and female physiology. Don't try to rewire your spouse. And I'm talking to us husbands in particular. Third, get adequate sleep and take care of your body. Letting your sleep fail may kill your desire in the marriage. Letting yourself go may kill his or her desire too. Your body belongs to the other as well. Fourth, there are stages of life. The importance of sex may change. I'm 48 years old. I can tell you about the experience of sexuality under 50, but for half of you over 50, I'm really not the expert. You talk with your spouse or with others who know. I know things apparently change to some degree. Fifth, affairs, whether they're emotional or physical, are intimacy killers, and so is pornography. Build radical barriers against that. And finally, beware of life-draining technology. Be cautious about screens in your bedroom. Consider putting your phone somewhere that's not reachable from where you're lying in bed. You want to know that something that saps sexual desire and energy, and I'll say it firsthand, it's having this around you in bed. But all those are practical things. What about God's grand purpose? God's grand purpose is that sex is not simply an act or an experience, but it's a sign of the gospel. And that includes the most intimate parts of our lives. Monogamy and fidelity don't restrict sexual freedom, they fuel it. There's news you'll never hear in our culture, and it's true. What the Bible says, and God made for one man and one woman, is the best way to enjoy his gift. Third, God declares that sex in marriage is relationally healthy and spiritually vital. Toward the end of this passage, Paul finishes with a section with a command, an exception, and a reminder. Here's the command. Don't withhold sex from your spouse. The word there is deprive. In other places, it's the word defraud or steal. Paul, Paul's saying it is theft of you if you're married to withhold or take away that kind of intimacy in a marriage. It, it cheats your spouse. Yet you and I know this happens all the time. And isn't it just like Satan to take a good gift from God and to distort it so that it, all it is is frustrating and disillusioning for a couple? Forster writes, sex is what goes wrong first and worst for fallen man. If sex is a portrait of the gospel, it's a living embodiment of what Satan hates most of all. It would only make sense if he, Satan, invested more effort in disfiguring the portrait, that portrait, than in any of the other ways he seeks to attack us. And he does that more than we can imagine through sexless 
marriages. I've heard it said, and I think this is so true, Satan works overtime to get couples in bed before they get married and to keep them out of bed after they get married. And way too many of us know that firsthand. Paul gives an exception here, a concession, he calls it in verse 6. There are times when a couple should forego sexual intimacy for a season of prayer. This can be wise. This can be timely. Like food preparation, sex takes time, and, and there's a time and a place for a fast. But it comes with very specific qualifications. First, it has to be mutually agreed upon. We've all heard the old line uh, used more than a few times, I- I've got a headache. I'm feeling really tired today. If that ranks as one of the highest excuses for uh, no sex in a marriage, we need to pray might be a competitor based upon this verse. Paul will have none of that. He says, husband and wife need to agree. If they don't, then it's not mutual and it it's, doesn't apply. Second exception is simple, for a limited time. It's an interruption This fast, it's not a new normal. Experience tells us, tells me, that it's best agreed upon in advance as a couple, the time. Otherwise, limited can become lengthy, and that's relationally unhealthy and spiritually dangerous. And here's where Paul gets overtly spiritual. He says, when married couples forego regular sexual intimacy, they're playing with fire. Satan is an evil intruder, and he will find ways inside of a marriage to gain a foothold and foster chaos. And he'll do that when we decide that sex is not a part of our relationship. It it becomes a raging brush fire, and as we all know from brush fires, it burns everything in its path. If you're married... Paul says it's God's will that you pursue sexual intimacy regularly with your spouse. Because to ignore that risks depriving the gift of marriage and also puts you and your spouse at the mercy of Satan's schemes. Craig Blomberg says this well, because this verse can be abused. He says sex is something that each partner owes To the other. So it should never be used as a bribe or reward for good behavior or something to be withheld as a threat or punishment. At the same time, husband and wife alike must be sensitive to the emotional and physical states of each other and not insist on sex on demand. Some of you think, well, that would be all the time then, wouldn't it? I think I know what he thinks. I think I know what she thinks. Maybe not. Let me give you a dare. Ask him. Ask her. You might find out that what you think isn't actually what he or she thinks. We tend to think always or never is what our spouse thinks. That gets us into a world of hurt. Communicating about sex is hard work. I know And I've failed, but it's life-giving work, and it's worth the effort. Finally, Paul concludes commending the gift of chastity and singleness and fidelity in marriage. Paul says that there is something more important in life than sex, and it's God. There's something more important than intimacy with your spouse, and it's embracing God. There's something more important than finding the grass greener on the other side of where you are. 
Paul says to be content with where you find yourself and with whom you find yourself. Paul says that he was single and that there's great benefit in the unmarried life, but not for a moment does Paul make married life inferior. And he says for those who have been called to it, this is God's design for your life. I'd like to conclude our time with some noble and inspiring words from followers of Jesus about how sex in marriage is a major part of following Jesus Christ. May they inspire you as we close. First, God liberates us to the gift of sex for our protection and our pleasure. Here's what Russell Moore writes. Your sex life, of course, in many senses, is your business. But your sex life is for the purpose of shoring up your marital union. That means your children are dependent on your sex life, though they don't want to hear about it. The church is dependent on your sex life, though we don't really want to hear about it either. Sometimes the most immediate way to fight the devil is to go to bed together. Second, God uses our marriages, including a healthy sex life, to be faithful to our vows and to accentuate our witness. What we really need is for Christians coast to coast, Forster writes, to become models of marital blessing. Our neighbors won't find marriage plausible until they see in practice how a lifetime of monogamous marriage is a blessing. And finally, Nancy Percy, God uses our marriages as a beautiful picture of the gospel. Sex is meant to be a profound connection of two persons. When people witness the loving, faithful relationship between husband and wife, they are meant to see a picture of how much God loves his people. Friends, this is a personal topic, but it's profoundly important. And what we learn in 1 Corinthians 7 is that ongoing sexual intimacy in marriage celebrates God's design and undermines the devil. That's how important marriage is. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. We're not going to sing a song here to close, but rather give you just a moment to ask God to do a work in your heart, in your life, and if you're married, in your marriage. And if you're single here today, I would beg you, I would plead with you to pray for those of us who are married that in the wonder and the complication of our marriages that we might honor God and honor our spouse. For if we can live this out before God in this world, the power of the gospel shines. God, this is a wonderful subject and a sensitive one. This is a powerful part of how you've made us and also a very fragile one. Sex is the source of much joy and deep pain. In this fallen world, we desperately need you, God. And on behalf of all the married couples connected to this church, we invite you to have your way in our lives so that we might experience the delight of what you've offered and show off what you can do. Each of us by nature are selfish and want what we want, but we want to learn in the power of your spirit what it means to be a sacrificial servant to the one you've given to us. And I pray that we would model that as couples and that we will model that in the life of our church. God, thank you for the gift. Thank you for marriage. And thank you that you can redeem and restore. 
where the rest of the world and even we ourselves say, too difficult, impossible. Have it your way, Lord. We need you and we ask you to place yourself in the middle of our marriages. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.